there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in foreign affairs, public policy, or the field of political risk, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the president and founder of a leading global political risk research and consulting firm and is a New York Times bestselling author of nine books covering a variety of topics like America's role in the world, globalism, populism, all the isms, and the free market. But before I introduce you to Dr. Ian Bremer, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek into the guests and the episodes we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Ian Bremer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a leading global political risk research and consulting firm. He's also the president and founder of G Zero Media, where he hosts the weekly digital and broadcast show G Zero World, where he explains the key global stories of the moment. He sits down for in-depth conversations with the newsmakers and thought leaders of our time, those who are shaping our world, and he takes your questions. Ian, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Andrea, happy to be with you. Fantastic. As we learned in the espresso shots, which we recorded just before this, Dr. Bremer prefers to have his espresso right after dinner because he needs it then to stay awake because he likes to get up super early. We didn't get into his daily routine, but maybe we will hear if you are interested, my friends, in learning how to break into the world of political risk and political science. Check out the show notes for this episode to see if Dr. Bremer's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. So, Ian, before we get into your newest endeavor, G Zero Media, I thought that we might be able to kind of first explain to our listeners who may not know what the heck global political risk is, what it is, and what makes it such a dynamic field to get into. Well, well you're basically talking about applied political science. In other words, political science that's relevant to the global economy, to the private sector, to the world's markets. And, you know, usually political risk, you're talking about countries that are pretty unstable, emerging markets, countries where rule of law may not be as strong, and where the politics really do change the outcomes. So if, in other words, if, if 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you're going to invest in Canada into a new venture. You don't necessarily need to know the politics that well to make sure you get the business right. You know the business. But if you can invest in Russia, China, Turkey, and you don't know the politics, you really shouldn't be doing business there. So that, that's part of it. But the other part is that increasingly 
the entire global political environment that used to be really run by the United States and its allies and our institutions globally, our architecture, our standards is unwinding. And that means suddenly that political risk is is mattering at the macro level, that if you're thinking about the future of the global economy, your concerns and your opportunities are increasingly driven at least as much by where you think politics are going, the trade war, the US election, impeachment, you name it, as they are by the economics. And that's quite something, and it makes this field much more important. I listened to a wonderful talk that you gave recently in the fall of 2019 at Columbia University's Graduate School of International and Political Affairs. And in that talk, you shared with those in the audience how when you finished your PhD in the late 80s, there were no jobs in the private sector for political scientists who wanted to do what you just laid out there. Why was that? And how have things changed in the ensuing 20 years or so? Yeah. So 1994, I finished my PhD at Stanford. I, I had not intended to do a PhD, by the way, but I was very young when I went to college. I was 15 when I started college. So I was pushed ahead. And by the time I finished, I wasn't ready to work. I mean, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I figured, well, if I like political science. I like learning about the world. So if I get a PhD, by the time I finish it, I'll be normal age to go get a job. So it wasn't like I started my PhD with the idea of I want to be a professor. I started my PhD with the idea of I like poli sci. I'll be 23, 24. I'll finish my PhD and then I'll get a job as a political scientist. What I hadn't appreciated is that there were no private sector jobs as political scientists. You could go and be an academic or you could go and be a researcher but you couldn't get a job. And that, that seemed kind of crazy to me because it was pretty obvious that the field was relevant. And part of it was you didn't learn much about the markets and economy to show, to make it relevant, to, to make those connections. And part of it was the businesses didn't have the background and the experience hiring people with this expertise. And so I remember moving to New York and meeting a bunch of people that were really nice to me in high level positions in big companies. Bob Hormatz, who was the vice chairman of Goldman Sachs, before that had been assistant secretary of the State Department. And Frank Wisner, who was vice chairman of AIG, but before that had been ambassador to countries like India and Colombia, all over the world. And they were really nice to me and they clearly thought what I did was relevant to them, but they didn't have jobs as political scientists. So after meeting all these people and spending you know, lunches over a year with them, I'm getting frustrated that no one was hiring me to, to do what I did. I finally said to one of them, I don't remember which one it was even, well, you know, would you become a client if I just started a firm, if I just put a shingle outside my door. And, and he said, of course I would. And then I thought to myself, well, why didn't I just start with that idea? And within a couple of weeks, I had commitments from 10, 12 different people and companies that they'd become clients. And so that was kind of the, the, the ass backwards way that Eurasia Group and the political risk industry was started. So you've said a number of things that are really interesting there. I think the first question that popped into my head was, how did you as a young guy in your early 20s meet Ambassador Wisner and was it Frank Hormack? Was that the other name that you said? Uh, Bob Hormack. Bob Hormack. I give you, there yeah. are probably 15 of them. Yeah. Bill yeah. Lourdes, lots of plus. So how did you meet them? Well, you know, first of all, I did my PhD at Stanford and I taught there for a couple of years when I finished and I was working on the former Soviet Union. 
And so there are a couple of really fortunate things there. One is that Stanford is one of a very small handful of schools in the world where the people that you're working with are world-class and very networked. So if they think you're bright and they like you, their ability to get you in front of decision makers and stakeholders is very high. So number one is just by virtue of being there, you have such a step up over any other platform to get to know the people that actually matter. Second point is I had done a lot of field work in the former Soviet Union at a time that that was the most interesting place geopolitically in the world. Remember, 1991, three years before I finished my PhD, is when the Soviet Union collapsed and I was doing work on the former nationalities, those republics of the former Soviet Union, Ukraine and Armenia and Azerbaijan and the Kyrgyz Republic. And, and I got to know a bunch of the people who were dissidents in those movements and suddenly when the Soviet Union collapsed, some of them became ministers and even presidents. I mean, the president of the, the Kyrgyz Republic was a good friend of mine. And so I, I, this young guy suddenly had access to a bunch of people that really mattered. And I knew a few things from my Russian language and my, my research on the ground in those countries that were of real interest. So that when I met some of those decision makers at the big companies, and I wasn't asking them for anything. I was just trying to display my expertise and content and provide value to them because they were already giving me something that was much more valuable than anything I had. They, they had time and their willingness to give me an hour or two hours. I mean, I had plenty of time. They had very little of it. So in return, it was very important for me that I was going to offer them something of value. So at the end of that meeting, they'd say, oh, that guy was worth my time because that was really interesting. I did have something that they found was useful, which was my expertise and access and my analysis on a part of the world that was suddenly very interesting to them. So I think it was those two things that really helped to allow me to make some of the connections that even though I couldn't get a job because that job didn't exist, that allowed me to create something from thin air that was very likely to be successful on at least a small scale. So how were you paying the bills then? While you were meeting these guys for lunch, you weren't working for them yet, and you hadn't yet started your firm. Well, you know, like Trump, you know, my father gave me $10 million just to <laughs> screw around for a few years. So, you know, that was really helpful. No, I mean, that's not true. My dad died when I was four, and my mom didn't finish high school, and I was raised in the project. So I, I really had no money, no connections, no access at all. And I'll tell you, it's kind of funny how I made money when I started because, you know, I made a, a decent amount of money teaching at Stanford for a couple of years. My second year at Stanford, I was a national fellow at the Hoover Institution and I had this little fellowship at Lawrence Livermore. This would have been in 1995, 96. I think I made between the two jobs about $90,000 and I, I saved at least 25 or 30, which allowed me to put a down payment on my first ever apartment, which was $250,000 in New York. I had 25,000 to put into that, which was incredible. I, as a kid growing up in the projects, the idea I could make 90,000 bucks in a year, I, mean, I just couldn't believe it. But I fell into something that was kind of interesting. So as I said, I had this weird expertise on the former Soviet Union. And there were a lot of people that were seeking asylum who were minorities from these republics. You know, when the Soviet Union collapses, suddenly you have people who are like Abkhaz or Chechens or Russians living in Ukraine and Crimea, wherever. And they would come to the U.S. and they would try to get asylum. And they'd have these lawyers who didn't know a damn. They were just trying to, you know, sort of get them into the country. And the judges didn't want to just listen to the lawyers. The judges wanted to hear from a real expert on what the situation was on the ground. 
And, and I, I really did know I had been to these places. I actually was an expert on nationalities affairs. But what, here's what's interesting is you could get paid $250 an hour delivering expert testimony for these cases. And so, and, and the judges all thought that I was by far the best one they had heard and maybe the only in some cases. So what I ended up doing was about two or three days a month, I would do expert testimony on these nationalities cases, make 3000 bucks, put it away. That would pay for my mortgage and my, my, you know, my, my regular operating expenses. And for literally the rest of the time, I could try to figure out how to start my company. There was literally no pressure. It's a very funny thing. I remember story. I don't know if I've talked about it before. There was, I, I got this tiny little office in the beginnings of Silicon Valley here in New York City on 25th and Broadway. It was class C office space, maybe. And most of the offices were run by these little tech startups. And they had a networking, you know, sort of a meetup, networking meetup with, you know, you can only imagine like Dixie cups and box wine and a platter of crappy cheese. Right. And, and everyone was there to meet these fellow entrepreneurs. And I'd never met any entrepreneurs that started companies before. And since I was starting my own, I thought I should meet them. So I went to meet them and they were all talking about their burn rate. And so someone asked me what my burn rate was. And I didn't know what it was. And so I asked them, what's burn rate? And they said, well, that's, you know, you raise a certain amount of money. And the burn rate is how much you're spending every month. So how much time you have before you have to raise the next tranche. And I said, oh, I don't have one of those because I had never spent any money in Eurasia Group until money was coming in. And because I had this three days a month I could do to pay for my own personal expenses, I was never in a position that I was taking a risk on the firm. I mean, if it had taken me five years to get it off the ground, that would have been fine. There was, I mean, there was really no pressure on me, right? In that regard, there was no possibility it was going to fail. There was just a chance it was going to take a long time to succeed and I'd have to try a different thing. What a great story. So can you give us an example or two, Ian, of the kind of work that you started off doing for your clients 20 years ago. Could you break it down for us? What type of analysis were you providing them with? Well, I mean, look, when I started, the firm is called Eurasia Group, but when I started the firm, it was literally just me. It was Eurasia Guy. And I mean, if I called it Eurasia Guy, I don't think a lot of people were going to become clients. So, I mean, that was, that was a bit of a misnomer. But what they really were paying for was access to me. I mean, you know, they were essentially the same lunches that we were having, you know, before where I was telling them what was happening on the ground in the region with these leaders that would be relevant for them. Suddenly it was a little more structured. They were telling me a little bit more about their business. And I was also starting to write pieces that I thought would be relevant to them proactively emails and what kind of research it was on things like in 1998, why it was likely that even though the Russians had the money to pay off their debt, why they were likely to default and devalue their currency because of Yeltsin's drunkenness and his indifference to the international community, the sense that they had you know, beseeched him, as well as the new prime minister, Kirienko, who didn't have the influence to actually move the oligarchs or others in cabinet to get his bidding done, which mattered immensely. And even though a lot of people weren't prepared to move their money on the basis of what this 28-year-old kid was saying, they remembered that I was saying it when it turned out that I was right. 
they came back and they said, maybe we should do more work with you. So there was a lot of that kind of thing that was going on in the early days. So I'm trying to remember where the state of the internet was in 98. How were you doing your research? I was doing my research mostly through my personal network, through the people that I knew. I mean, remember, I, I, I know the language. I had lived on the ground in these countries. I mean, I don't know Kazakhstan today like I did in the day, though I just spent an hour with the Kazakh president, just the two of us on the sidelines of the United Nations meeting a few weeks ago. But I'm not, you couldn't call me a Kazakhstan expert anymore. Back in the early 90s, I was one of the top Kazakhstan experts in the world. I, I knew the country and I knew probably everyone on the ground that really mattered in terms of analysis there. And so, I mean, yeah, you read the newspapers, but you really need to know those people, those journalists, those sociologists, those political scientists, those bureaucrats, those political leaders, the opposition, the ambassadors, the DCMs. I mean, all of those people were really relevant. And I knew those people across most of the republics of the former Soviet Union. So, I mean, there's really nothing like shoe leather. And that's why I said, you know, before when you were talking to me on the espresso shots on do you have to have a poli sci degree? I think it's really important. But analytic journalists also do really well because sometimes the political scientists don't network very well. They do too much of the, you know, sort of primary research in the archives without getting to know the people. Journalists frequently do too much of the getting to know the people without doing the research. You really need both. So today, the Eurasia Group has almost 200 employees. Yep. You are in nine countries. Is that right? We have nine offices around the world. We're in, I mean, our, our experts on the ground are in about 100 countries, but the offices are, we've got nine offices around the world today. Yep. And you have around a thousand clients. Yep. I mean, I, I don't, I don't count them, but something that sounds about right. Hundreds, hundreds of clients. Yeah. How has the field changed and what opportunities exist for young people like some of our listeners who may be interested in building a career in international affairs and political science? Well, I mean, first of all, the field has changed because I no longer have to explain to people what it is we do and why it's relevant to them. They get it. They understand it. It's easy to get a first meeting. The field, it's not just that I'm known, but the field is known. The firm is known. The field is not just our company. There are so many companies that are in this industry now, so many young people that are getting involved, uh, a lot of big companies developing, you know, sort of hiring political scientists. Citigroup has a chief political scientist now. Her name's Tina. Yeah, I, I adore her. She's really smart. Her name's Tina Fordham. Back when she worked for me on research, her name was Tina Nelson, but she's the same Tina. And, you know, the, the same people that told me as bankers that they didn't hire political scientists now have a chief political scientist with people working for her that used to work for me. I mean, that's just fantastic. That was the job I wanted when I finished my PhD and it didn't exist. So it's pretty exciting that this has become a real field. Before I pivot to G-Zero Media. I want to ask you if you could deconstruct what the qualities were that allowed you to become a pioneer and essentially create the industry that didn't exist. Well, first of all, it's taken a long time. It's 22 years. I mean, I think if you're focused on something and you're any good at it over 22 years, you probably build something, right? I mean, it's the only thing I've worked on professionally over that time. I, I really enjoy it. I'm very passionate about it. I'm deeply curious. I'm not very political. I've never been a member of a political party. I've always been skeptical that one set of political leaders have all the answers 
it's kind of like the idea that I was raised Catholic. So that means that Buddhism is fundamentally wrong. You know, it just I've never been that way. So I think there are some pieces of my personality that naturally kind of gravitated me towards doing something like this. That definitely helped a recognition that having the content by itself wasn't enough. I mean, I remember when I started, I, I mean, you know, you try to write an op-ed in the New York Times and they say no. You can't get angry when someone else that has a bigger name writes an op-ed on the same topic three weeks later and it's not as good as yours in your view. Because it's not just about the content, it's also about did you do the work to get to know the person? Did you figure out how it works, how the game is played? And those things are equally important. And if all you're doing is content, but you're not bothering to figure out how to communicate it, how to get it across the transom to the people that matter, you do not deserve to have your content promoted. It's only a piece of it. And the problem in my field and in academe in general is that they focus only on the content and think that that by itself somehow gets it done for you. And it doesn't. It's not the way the world works. I think that being raised by my mother who didn't finish high school and was you know, a homemaker taking care of me and my brother in the projects, she never assumed that anything would be given to us. She, she recognized she had to fight for everything and she instilled that in me and my brother. And I think that there are a lot of, a lot of young people who haven't had to fight, who had networks and money that came because of the station their parents were in. Certainly most of my colleagues at Stanford and most of the people applying for jobs at Eurasia Group from Harvard and the other you know, wonderful schools, that network was provided to them. They're just not gonna work as hard and they think the opportunities are due to them and they're not. I mean, I think that you know, if you're, one of the things that I think young people most need to learn is that if, if you want someone to do something for you, you need to spend an awful lot of time first actually building the relationship and showing that you're actually worth their time. And if you haven't done that, it's never gonna work. And, and my mother, I think, really instilled in me and my brother the, the critical importance of bootstrapping yourself to create your own opportunities, create your own luck. That's uh, the luck I had was that she raised me, which was an extraordinary piece of luck most people have. But once I had that, I recognized that a lot of the additional luck I was gonna have to make myself. Well, your mother sounds like an extraordinary person. Oh, she really was. She really was. So speaking of bootstrapping, why did you decide to found a media company, to found G Zero Media? Well, I mean, you know, first it had been 20 years since I started Eurasia Group, so it sounds like time to do another company. But I mean, the reality is, I, I think when I started Eurasia Group, first of all, my conceit was I just wanted to be a political scientist with resources all over the world so I could do better work. So how was I going to accomplish that? I needed a company. I needed resources for it. But also, I believed that speaking truth to power was going to matter. And so having a company that allowed me access regularly to heads of state, CEOs, key public influencers, that that was really going to help me make a difference. Because I never thought I was going to be secretary of state or national security advisor. Again, I'm just not political enough to do that. I don't think I could lie effectively enough on a public stage or pretend that I supported certain policies. So this was the way that I thought I could matter, that I could have purpose. And over the last few years, it's become increasingly clear to me that the people in power are not doing enough with the truths that they know to really make a positive difference 
for the citizens that they should be responsible for. This is why so many of us believe that the system is rigged against the people and not just in the United States, but more broadly. So I think I started a media company with the understanding that you can't just speak truth to power, that if I've got 5 million people that are following me, I have to use some of the information, the resources I have to get information to those people. And especially because the media itself was getting so much more polarized and young people know when people are being inauthentic, when they're being sold a line. So I was hoping that maybe I could help create a destination where young people could feel like we were being authentic and we were trying to inspire them to get more involved in understanding the world, that they could make a difference, that they wouldn't have to be turned off by politics and by understanding politics. So that was that was really the reason for it. And I've been delighted with how quickly it's taken off. Fantastic. So I'd like to flashback very quickly to when you were in college and you were a teenager. I mean, really a teenager. You were the same age as my son, 15 years old. Yep. Is that, that's when you started college? That's right. Yeah. Okay. You went to Tulane yep. and you majored in, no surprise, political science. Absolutely. Did you know what you were going to do, Ian, when you graduated? Of course not. Which is why you went into graduate school. I asked that question because a few people say yes. But the vast majority say no. And I hope, especially for our regular listeners, they see the theme here. Most of us had no clue what we were going to do when we graduated. And it's all good. It is all good. So two final questions. Could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled? Maybe it was right after you launched the Eurasia Guy, the Eurasia Group. Was it always smooth sailing? And most importantly, how you persevered and how you got through that rough patch and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. You know, I, there, are, there are a few moments, I think, that were struggles. I mean, not, never anything existential. I mean, I remember once early on when we were dealing with getting invitations out for an event that we were doing with a head of state from the former Soviet Union. And it was until four o'clock in the morning and we were sending faxes out by hand, me and two interns didn't know that WinFax existed as an application that you could all automate it because no one taught me that stuff and found out the next morning that none of them had actually gone through because of a problem with the, the fax. I mean, you know, little disasters like that happened all the time the first couple of years when I started the firm, getting taxes wrong. I mean, you name it, right? When you are starting a company and you have no idea how to start a company, you, you get everything wrong to begin with. I mean, I, I used to run our books in the first two years on Microsoft Word and a calculator. I didn't know how to do Excel or a spreadsheet, right? So you can imagine the mistakes you made. Then there was a time about seven, eight years in, we were about 20, 30 people. And, you know, I, I didn't have management. I was, it was 10, 15 people. It was one team all around me. It gets to 20, 30 people. Suddenly you have some salespeople, you have some other people doing research. You have some other kind of people that are principals in the organization. Not only am I still doing all of the client management, if you will, but I'm also running the firm which is becoming a real firm, not a team. And I, I started to feel like I was losing control of the content, that I was losing my expertise because it was too much. And there was a good six months year in there where I thought maybe I needed to just make the firm smaller and downsize because I wasn't gonna be able to do this. I wasn't sleeping enough, I was working too hard, it was unhealthy. And then I finally hired my first COO 
And he wasn't a very good COO. He didn't have a lot of expertise. And Lord knows I didn't have a lot of money to pay him. But it was able to take so much of that burden off of me. And it, it was like a light going off inside my head. Then I realized I could do it. Now I have a fantastic management team now, including a CEO who is world-class that I've known for 15 years. It makes a huge difference. I remember once when a nascent competitor, much bigger than I, decided that they wanted to get into the political risk space. This was about seven or eight years ago. And the way of doing it was over the course of one week, just trying to hire 30 of my top 50 people. And they got like six or seven of them. And that was, I mean, you can imagine the morale in the organization was horrible and everybody's stressed. And, you know, and the funny thing is, despite all of that, they weren't able to take any business from us. And the firm was fine. And it's it's really quite something. I remember talking to one of their principles a couple of years ago. And I said, you know, the only thing you guys got wrong, it was the right strategy, but you just didn't hire me. I said, if you'd hired me, you would have actually gotten a lot of that business. And it was kind of funny. But at the time, it wasn't a joke. At the time, it was very stressful. So, I mean, certainly you go through up cycles and down cycles. The one thing I didn't mention to you was like the global crises, the 9-11 crisis, the 2008 financial crisis, Actually, those were not stressful times in my firm at all because everyone in the firm was working so hard to try to get it right for our clients. Those are times when you feel really purposeful, when you all come together as an organization. And frankly, I would say right now with what's happening around impeachment, the divisions inside the U.S., Brexit, the U.S.-China story, all the rest, it's actually a time that's quite motivating for the organization. Wonderful. Well, listen, not that it's wonderful that all these terrible things are happening, but it's wonderful that your firm feels energized and hopefully is able to provide some clarity and insights that are useful to all these different companies. So I'd like to ask you one more question before I go to the last question. And it actually has to do with the idea that even incredibly successful people like you, Ian, have moments of self-doubt. And you may never have experienced this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I know for myself, I've been in, this is now my fourth profession. And in pretty much each one, I experienced the imposter syndrome and had self-doubt and all sorts of things. And I'm just curious as to whether at any point in your career, you've had that experience. You know, I have it all the time outside of my career. I mean, I don't pretend to have expertise. So when you think about what what it means to run a company, part of the reason I told you that I was, you know, that, that I was so much happier once I got management is because I was second guessing myself constantly on decisions about hiring, HR, uh, tech, finance. I mean, you name it. I, I just, I don't pretend to have that expertise. And the upside of that is that it's very easy for me to delegate to people that are really good at these things and not try to be the founder that controls everything. But a lot of self-doubt around that. Self-doubt as a political scientist, I mean, as someone who really is, I mean, I have a small field, but I'm seen as the leader in that small field. It's a funny thing. It happens regularly in a very specific and small way. So I go away to Nantucket every year for about 13 years now, and I take a full month, and it's where I do a lot of my reading, a lot of my thinking, a lot of my long-form writing, but I don't do client work. I stay away from email. I just shut down from the day-to-day, right? 
And I'll tell you, and it happens every year, because I love giving speeches on stage and talking about the world, and it doesn't matter with whom. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't have stage fright. I'm not worried, like, how come I'm on stage with this head of state? It doesn't bother me. But every time I come back for Nantucket, and I'm about to do my first serious speech, for about five minutes before I do the speech, I have this sense of why the hell are these people listening to me, right? It's really funny. And, and it's, it's, it's completely existential because I haven't been doing it for a month. And it, it's just, it's like suddenly you've lost it. Like, can I still ride that bicycle? And the funny thing is, as soon as I start speaking, it doesn't even take 30 seconds. It immediately comes back, but I can't replicate it in my head. That feeling of terror, that existential terror, the five minutes beforehand, there's nothing I can do about it. And I, I kind of feel like it's probably the way people feel that are really afraid of flying right when they're about to take off. There's nothing you can do about it. You're completely in somebody else's hands, but it's this dread. And and then it's fine. And it's happened now for over a decade, and I'm just going to have to live with it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Final time for coffee questioning. If you could go back to Tulane and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Not much. I mean, probably stress less, I would say, because it's not good for me. But I think if I had stressed less, I wouldn't have been able to get through that first five years, 10 years where a lot of hard work was required. I mean, I, I, I really do. I, I'm, I think that you start college at 15 and there are some things that you give up, right? I mean, I wasn't able to play competitive sport, which I really love because I was too damn small. And a lot of people used to ask me, you, do you feel bad that you started school at 15 and, you know, high school at 11? And, you know, weren't you like this dork, uh, you know, sort of wunderkind? But, you know, looking at it now, I'm, I'm not even 50 and I actually have balance in my life. I actually, you know, I don't work on weekends. I don't do work dinners. I take off a solid eight weeks a year of vacation. Most people I know that are remotely successful in their fields and certainly that run companies work so much harder all the time. And I think that starting so young, it made it easier for me to have perspective on that at an earlier age. So I'm not sure that I would, I mean, I have so obviously I've learned a hell of a lot that when I was 15 or 24, when I got my PhD or 28, when I started the company that I didn't know, but I'm not sure that giving my 15 year old self advice so that I could have avoided learning those things for myself is useful. I think that you need to learn things for yourself. You know, I mean, it's like, are you going to teach the kid to grow up? Or are you going to let the kid touch the hot stove and realize they shouldn't touch the damn hot stove? And I think in the case of, of me, especially given the way I was raised, I, I needed to take a few whacks when I was younger. So those lessons would actually stick. I, I think that's more important for kids. Ian's media company is called G Zero Media. He hosts a weekly digital and broadcast show, G Zero World. Ian, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are truly an extraordinary person and how lucky for you that you have accomplished so much and have this wonderful perspective now on your life and have been able to create the work-life balance that so many people crave. I mean, it's very kind of you to say that I'm obviously going to be an enormous pain in the ass if I make it to like 80. So I mean, I'm sort of looking forward to that. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.